All right, I am beyond stoked for today's interview. Today is just somebody that I want to personally talk to. A lot of people give me shit when I veer off topic from finance. But uh, guess what, fools? My podcast, my rules. So I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to interview the people that I like listening to. And that's why we have the man himself, Jeremy Riss, here today. First and foremost, look, when it comes to markets, it has been an uncertain year. Markets are still volatile. As a result, there's been a lot of investment into alternatives by some of the biggest players in finance. Goldman and BlackRock say the days of TINA, there is no alternative, are over. RIA reports 88% of surveyed advisors intend to increase allocations to alternatives over the next two years with over half, 52.6%, excuse me, raising allocations all the way to 15%. Institutions are already maxed out at 30 to 50% into alternatives. And what alternatives are they looking into? Specifically, Goldman names fine art among the ways to help protect your purchasing power. In 2022, the big three auction houses posted record high revenues of a combined $17.7 billion, their best year ever. And the global art market is still exceeding its pre-pandemic level, according to 2023 UBS Art Market Report. How can... We take advantage is the question. Tens of thousands of investors are already using Masterworks where you can invest without needing millions or an art degree. I have used Masterworks before to invest in paintings that I normally would never have access to due to the paltry sum of money that I have. (laughs) Every painting Masterworks has sold to date has delivered a positive return to their investors, including net annualized return of 10, 17, and even 35% all this year. Naturally, as I always say on this show, past performance is not a guarantee of future results, and any investing involves risk, including loss of principal. However, Masterworks' 15th exit was just a couple days ago for an annualized net return of 77.3%, and now you can skip the line, skip the waiting list at Masterworks. This is why you guys pay me, Masterworks. Thank you so much. I can't even put a sentence together. (laughs) Now you can get priority access to Masterworks and skip the waiting list. If you use my code QTR at masterworks.com, so they have a list, otherwise you'll have to wait and apply. I had to apply, I believe, years ago. Um, But if you use code QTR, you skip to the front of the line and make sure you see important regulation disclosures at masterworks.com slash CD and also see their disclaimers in my podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by my exclusive gold and silver providers, my friends over at JM Bullion, the only place I buy my gold and silver bullion. They have done over $7 billion in sales. They have been in business for nearly a decade now. They have great prices, low premiums to spot, huge inventory. A lot of times when other places get zapped they still have great inventory at times where there's a rush for gold and silver i noticed that jm bullion seems to carry more inventory at those points than their competitors they ship discreetly they turn around my orders very quickly and qtr podcast listeners have their own point of contact there for you guys only laura l-a-u-r-a at jmbullion.com so if you don't feel like going on the website and navigating it that way maybe you have some questions maybe you're a first-time buyer maybe you just want to say hello Shoot Laura an email, L-A-U-R-A at jmbullion.com. Tell her that you are a QTR podcast uh, listener and that you wanted to just say what's up. How's that? And then, you know, if you guys hit it off and you have any questions after that, well, God bless you all. All right, my friends, JM Bullion, I love you guys. This podcast also brought to you by my friends over at Rebel Capitalist Pro, where George Gammon has teamed up with Lynn Alden, Chris McIntosh, and Brent Johnson to help you preserve your wealth in a world of -of out-of-control central banks. George, I love you, brother. You know that? One of my favorite places to go for advice on macro. We will have you on the podcast soon. 
George has two great YouTube channels, Rebel Capitalist and George Gammon, that I am frequently listening to. He understands the macro world a hell of a lot better than I do. His Rebel Capitalist Pro offering is well worth it. You get access to their forums, their mock portfolios, live question and answer sessions with all their experts, and you get the premium content from people like Lynn Alden and Brent Johnson who are normally selling it on their own, so you get it as a package with Rebel Capitalist Pro. Uh, George, great and honest person to do business with and just one of my favorite sources to learn about macro. Check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. Link is in the podcast description. This podcast finally brought to you by my dear friend Sanglucci over at the Steam Room. What is going on, guys? Sanglucci and Wall Street Jesus. Folks, if you are an active trader, if you follow the options market, if you're interested in learning how to read tape, if you're interested in market psychology, or maybe you just want a great investing community around you, join up with Lucci and his merry band of brothers, Wall Street Jesus. My dear buddy, Charlie Bathgate, we're about due to have him on the podcast. It's been like probably two years since he's been on. Uh, The Steam Room is a beautiful piece of software. These guys have been tracking options flow since I have been in the business and well before it became something that everybody was doing. So these are the OGs of checking big moves in the options market, which many times can precede and telegraph moves in the equities market. What does that mean? It means if you don't trade like a herb, you might be able to get an edge up on uh, what the equity markets are going to do by following along with Sanglucci and his merry band of brothers. They have a piece of software that they have been working on for over a decade now. They're at the forefront. They're at the tip of the spear in tracking unusual options activity and reading market flow, tape, sentiment. These guys are some of the best active traders I've ever seen work. Sometimes I tune into Lucci's live stream on his Twitch, and I don't even tell him. I just sit there and watch him from afar. Sometimes he notices me on the thing. He's like, ah, what's up, QTR? And I don't say anything, and I sign off real quickly because I don't want him to know that I'm watching him from afar. All right, well, now that I've freaked everybody out, this is a great time to remind you I'm not an investment advisor. This show is never investment advice. There's definitely a two-drink minimum today. We're going off the rails outside the world of finance today, and I absolutely am just over the moon stoked about today's interview. All right, happy to have on with me uh, one of the one of my favorites to watch on some of my favorite podcasts. He was just on uh, Brett Weinstein's Dark Horse podcast with Michael Shermer. He was on a podcast called Concrete. I know I talked about it the last time I did my Bob Lazar and Alien specific uh, podcast. I was telling everybody to go check that one out. Uh, he is a uh, scientific skeptic and a conspiracy expert, I would call him. Um, also an independent science and technology researcher. He's got a long history of research and investigation into advanced propulsion and uh, various devices. He's, he's done all types of commentary about UAPs and UFOs. Uh, he's been, uh, he attended the congressional hearings that recently took place uh, with regard to UAPs. And that is uh, my new friend, Jeremy Riss. How are you, sir? Hey, Chris. How's it going? Nice to, nice to be talking to you, man. <laughs> It is great to have you on because first and foremost, you know, I spent a couple of podcast episodes with Mick West uh, trying to do the best that we could off the top of our head, debunking the Bob Lazar story. And it wasn't until I saw your interview that you recently did on Concrete that I learned probably five times more than what I thought I knew about the Bob Lazar story. Um, you cleared up so many gray areas. 
And I know my listeners have followed along with the story. Many of them are old coast-to-coast listeners. I know many of them have followed the Lazar story for decades. And I wanted to see if you could kind of, uh, to start, help my listeners kind of understand where you stand on the Lazar story. Do you believe him? Do you not believe him? And uh, what do you think some of the biggest points for or against him uh, have been in the story that he claims? Well, uh, I think I was eight years old when Bob Lazar came out in May 1989. Um, So I wasn't really old enough to know about it, but I grew up with him through the 90s on Unsolved Mysteries and watching him on TV and all those other programs. And always was super interested in this kind of stuff. Uh, And I read a book in high school about Richard Feynman's life and how he was recruited into, you know, the Manhattan Project and all this top secret physics research as a bright young physics student out of MIT. And, um, well, actually he was recruited out of Princeton as a, as a, a young graduate student. They, they took a bunch of graduate students who had already had their undergrad degrees and recruited them into the Manhattan Project. So I read about that and that got me all, you know, early on in 2000 or so when I graduated high school, I went, you know, was all into, you know, physics and going to college for physics and then 9-11 happened and um and it and then i i it just sent a whole uh my, my world my world changed a lot over the next uh you know decade or so and it led me down a lot of different paths that i wouldn't have ordinarily gone down and then i got you know i was probably convinced that bob lazar was legit up until about i think you know 2008 or nine when I when I started making my YouTube channel, I, I I think 2008 or 2009 is when I started the Alien Scientist YouTube channel, and that's when I started you know talking about you know Bob Lazar. I talked about Ed, Edgar Fouché, who not a lot of people had heard about, and um, the TR3B and the Mercury Plasma Vortex Engine and all that stuff, and uh, got started getting a lot of attention for talking about those things on YouTube, um, and I actually got to meet a lot of people that were in the Lear camp. I met a guy named uh, Dan, who uh, he, he's been on my show uh, a number of times talking about Bob Lazar, and I learned a lot of information on the Bob Lazar case through Dan, um, Dan Benkert. And Dan was good friends with John Lear for a number of years uh, and got to know a lot about the ins and outs of the Lazar uh, history and the story. And so... Um, I learned a lot through uh, through Dan, and then, um, of course, I met Edgar Fouché through a contact that saw me making videos about him and says, hey, you know, I know this guy, and I can put you in touch with him. So I got in touch with Edgar Fouché, and I, I used to have him on my podcast and, and uh, for a number of years. And, um, you know, when I asked T.D. Barnes, head of the Roadrunners, that's head of the uh, organization of people that work out at Area 51, uh, if Bob Lazar worked out there, and he said flat out no, you know, he looked into it. He can, you can, can flatly deny that Bob never, you know, was employed by, by him out there or worked on any of the programs. And he, he was the manager during 89, you know, so he would have known all the personnel on the program. Um, so he says no about Bob Lazar. But when I asked him about Edgar Fouché, he said, let me look into it and get back to you. And his response about a week later was, I can neither confirm nor deny that Edgar Fouché worked at Area 51. <laughs> so um, Ed Ed has a lot of the paperwork to prove 
you know, that he was stationed there, at least at Nellis, and, um, and you know, was, was involved in some of these programs, and, and he knows some of the people. Uh, I guess he knew Hal Putoff and some other people, uh, which is where he, he was the source of a lot of his information. I still don't know where he fully got the TR-3B thing uh, from, but a lot of his physics was off. You know, the pressurization is just... It's extremely high pressure. What he what he was, uh, you know, his his technical specs for the aircraft were kind of like way off. So we 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 covered that and pointed a lot of that out. We've had a lot of the researchers who've worked for the you know NASA or other programs on um, on what's called high frequency gravitational waves and and also like torsion uh, physics and stuff. So we've got we've had like David Chester on to talk about that and also Gary mm-hmm. Stevenson. Uh, to talk about the high frequency gravitational wave stuff, so we've, we've dug into a lot of this with the with the physics side of it, as well as the in and technical side of it, as well as the you know historical research side of it, just the names and and the people involved and and the the dates and connections and and things like that. So yeah, I, that's that's pretty much. Uh, I mean, let me get back on on track with Bob Lazar though. Is that you know. I started learning more about the case and then Edgar Fouché started helping us really dig into the case. And, um, you know, he said, Bob never mentioned the foggles and you'll, you'll never forget miscomfort. You know, he, he talks about just walking around out there on the, on the lake bed with, you know, that he could see everything. And he said before, before anyone got out, they made you wear these, you know, this headset, which like blocked your vision and, uh, you know, prevented you from seeing so, and, and from more than 30 feet away, it would, bl- it would blur everything out after, after 30 feet. And um, so you could only really walk around in front of you and, and not see nearby hangars and not get a, there was no way you'd walk by, a, a, you know, a room or a hangar and accidentally get a look inside at, it, at a little bean, you know, sitting in a room <laughs> or a, a saucer full of hangar, a hangar full of saucers that you, you had access to all of them. No, you'd be working on one program, one project, and that's that's where you'd stay. And anytime you stepped out of that zone, you'd have this these foggles on. And other guys who've worked out at Area 51 confirmed those. So that's missing from Bob's story. And uh, a couple other things are missing, you know, that we started picking it apart. You know, his ID badge that he put out says MJ-12 on it. And... Um, you know, that's obviously taken from the MJ-12 documents, uh, which were a popular, you know, I think they've been established with a lot of researchers as, as a hoax, although Stanton Friedman, you know, was swearing that they were real. And then now it's it's kind of it's kind of believed that the they were a hoax, but they were based on real documents, but put out in order to discredit the real documents should they ever be leaked or come out. You know, so now if the real documents do come out, they can discredit, oh, that's been debunked. So that's kind of what a lot of people believe is what happened with with all that. But as far as, you know, Bob's ID badge, why it says MJ-12 and not Wackenhut, which was the security contractor at the time, which managed security and electronic badging and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, his ID badge should have, should have said EG&G, the contractor, right. or Wackenhut, the security, you know, Well, he, he later so. admitted that was uh, falsified, right, his ID badge? Yeah, he said it was, oh, he, he tried to make a replica of, of what it looked like as best as he could from memory. 
Yeah. You know, so so he just missed that that's not the real one, that he he made it up. Because, well, it turns out he, he was employed as a photo processor for a number of years in uh, in Los Alamos. He ran, a, he ran a photo processing lab, and that's the business that he ran in Las Vegas when he moved there and met Gene Huff, and Gene Huff introduced him to John Lear, as the story goes, according to their own words. So... And I've tried to track down as much of it as I can. Of course, John Lear is dead now, but Gene Huff is still alive and lives in Las Vegas. And um, hopefully, maybe he'll be ready to talk soon. I'm not not sure. I'm trying. You know, he seems to he he wants to come forward and and because it's been like thirty something years since he's spoken mm-hmm. publicly. But I guess he believes Bob Lazar, and he wants to kind of lay it all out for why he still believes Bob. And so I'm willing to hear that and, and, you know, look at new evidence and stuff. Of course, Bob's claim that he took a piece of this element 115 out of area 51 with him. And that would be like bulletproof, you know, physical hard evidence if that was real. Right. Right. Um, And, you know, we've heard George Knapp and Jeremy Corbell brag about, you know, this, you know, thing too. It's, but if they really have that, that's like, they would they they'd have disclosure right in their pocket. So, so I don't understand why they're begging the government for no, disclosure. They had, a, they had a videotape that you know George Knapp taped over with an episode of the Golden Girls or something, or he misplaced it. You know, well we had the video evidence, but then you know <laughs> nobody can find it now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it. It's it's all it's all very convenient and interesting um, for. You know, if not for someone that wants to prove disclosure, but for someone that wants to sell sell a story and make good profit off of a story yeah exactly kind of- and what was interesting about your your appearance on concrete was some of the things that i was talking to mick west about you know the interesting thing about lazar's story is i've often felt there's you know he's lying with elements of the truth baked in which makes it much more difficult to differentiate one from the other like there's no doubt that he worked at los alamos in in some regard whether he was working in the cafeteria or he was a technician or he was a physicist he was definitely there but you know claiming to have been a physicist there and the fact that he actually did work there but maybe in a different respect makes it really difficult to try to it kind of almost makes it a wash and what i liked about your interview on concrete was there were so many areas of those where you were kind of able to scrub away a lot of the nonsense uh, and get right down to it. One of, one of which was, um, well, actually, first, let me just say about the hangar doors. You're talking about wearing the foggles in Area 51. One of the things I talked to about Mick West was this claim that somehow he's going to be able to look through nine doorways, right, of nine hangars to see, to see and identify nine different craft, which is a claim he's been making for years while he was in area 51 at some point somebody carelessly oh, that's left. s4 so that's not area 51 oh was i'm sorry s4. are you familiar? so s4 is the yeah so yeah, yeah so s4 is like the papoose lake and groom lake is to the north that's that's area 51 but he he's claiming that there's a there's a extra super secret facility where all the alien stuff is that's outside of area 51 so that it's compartmentalized and then other critics have argued that, oh, that's why T.D. Barnes and these other guys didn't know about him. He, he got the MJ-12 badge because even Wackenhut and E.G.&G doesn't know about the su- super secret S4. But 
S4, he claims that it's an old underground facility right there next to the lake bed. And, of course, we, we got, like, high-def pictures of that from a flyover that a guy named uh, Gabe Zeifman, Z-E-I-F-M-A-N, um, did. And he, he he's a pilot out there. And, and during the winter months, like Christmas, uh, you know, the base is shut down and all the, all the contractors are going home, so nothing's operating out there. So you can get clearance to fly really close to uh, the base. You know, so he did a flyover with a super high def, you know, camera with a telescopic lens and, and got some amazing uh, photography of S4, uh, the, the S4 location, the, the, the mound. He said it's mountains, but it's really like a little molehill. And if there's an underground facility there, then if it floods, it floods in the wet season in the, win- in the winter uh, months is like the wet season out there and that dry lake bed actually turns into a wet lake bed for a number of months um in fact this is what happened out in in, uh, death valley with the stones that that the the supposed walking stones the stones that would move across the you know desert floor (laughs) and they couldn't figure they couldn't figure out what was picking up and what force was moving these stones and they thought it was anti-gravity or some other like uh, weird force but it turns out that you know during during the winter months that dry uh, ice will form in those lake beds, you know, at nighttime. And when the ice heats up, it heats up so quickly during the daytime, you know, fluctuations in the, out in the desert there, that it actually, um, the ice sheets cause what's called sh- uh, sheathing or, or uh, the, the whole sh- ice shelf moves. So you get this static um, ice shelf that can actually pick up rocks and, and drag them across the, the, the lake bed and the surface. And that's what was causing this. They, they actually, scientists actually researched it and found it out that it was like a one, a very short and quick lived event. But anyways, that's a, that's a side note um, on that. But yeah, the whole thing floods. So you wouldn't be able to have an underground facility there if the whole thing's flooding out, you know? And isn't so, there isn't there an S four elsewhere? This plays into a larger theme of one of the things yes. that I think you do brilliantly is you you identify the genesis where a lot of his lies start. Basically, you cover the whole story, all of his claims about the craft and everything else. You can kind of point to where historically those ideas may have gotten into his head, which I found fascinating. But let's start with S four. Isn't there another S four? Yes. Yeah. There's two other S fours. Um, they're actually site site four. Um, there's one at at um, plant forty two, which is where the B two bo- stealth bomber was made. So this was a classified site during you know nineteen eighty nine called site four that he might have heard rumors of you know. And uh, so site four, there was one site four at plant forty two, and there was another site four at Tonopah, which was actually the um, it was the anti-Russian ECCM research facility. So ECCMs are different. ECCM stands for electronic counter countermeasure. And an electronic countermeasure would be radar. So it's an electronic system that's a countermeasure to aircraft because it detects the aircraft and gives us electronic warnings ahead of time of of the position and speed and and other data on on incoming enemy ships and aircraft, right? So that's an ECM, electronic countermeasure. So if you want to counter enemy radar, that's like stealth, right? So that's like, how how do we, how do we counter enemy radar or jam enemy radar? And there's a a whole bunch of different technologies that fall under that category of ECCMs. 
and uh, including, you know, the ability to spoof these plasma balls, uh, a number of, you know, like the, the talking plasma continuous flashbang grenades. They cross two lasers, and, and uh, where the lasers cross, it, it creates this um, ionized gas plasma in the air, and they can uh, move that around and make, you know, visual displays with it in the air, and then also um, they can also supercavitate the air in front of uh, hypersonic torpedoes and missiles. The ICBMs, the new gen, next gen ICBMs, use these uh, these lasers to create a supercavitated airflow in front of the nose cone of the craft. So it, it, it eliminates the bow shock and a lot of the um, a lot of the air resistance and all well, pretty much all the air resistance, virtually all the air resistance in front of the craft if it can be tuned and positioned correctly. So this is, um, these are a number of new technologies. I believe that these things are being used and utilized on drones. I mean, this is nothing new. This started in, in, in the 1950s with uh, a guy named Thomas Townsend Brown and his research for Bonson Labs, which, you know, Kurt Jamungle made a whole documentary about based on a lot of um, my research as well as Eric Wolf's research and others uh, who researched that. So there's um, there's a ton of uh, a ton of this that goes back to technologies that are you know still classified. Um, but then you have uh, the ECCM station. So so you have two site fours to bring it back to the whole Bob Lazar thing. You got two places called site four, which were cla- doing classified research and back in the in the eighties and you know. You got Bob Lazar with his buddy Gene Huff, who's a real estate guy who talks to all kinds of people buying houses and on the housing markets and stuff down in Las Vegas, which is the hub hub for Area 51. You know, all the Area 51 workers live, live in Las Vegas and they take the Janet air, aircraft, you know, terminal to uh, fly it to Area 51. And so, you know, all these, all these people live in Las Vegas and, hang out in Las Vegas and buy houses in Las Vegas. And then of course you got, you know, Bob's friend, Jim Tagliani, who worked at site four out at Tonopah. So might've been feeding him some, some of that information. Um, and then, you know, you go into the whole reactor core that he drew up for that element 115 reactor that he's, you know, claims this is, this is how they did it. And the, um, it's interesting that he talks about these layered materials, though, um, you know, because that's like metamaterials. Is anytime you take, you know, things in layers and you layer them in specific layers, um, that doesn't change anything to this, you know, wedge of element 115 other than, than it would maybe make it a metamaterial, um, which, is inter- which is interesting that he heard about that. And I, I'd be curious, you know, to learn more about where he heard about these, these layerings and the material layerings stuff. Cause, um, that's definitely has to do with some real research that was going on at the time, you know, the, the whole operate uh, it's called project rainbow. And they, they designed a bunch of different stealth coatings for aircraft at the time, like the wallpaper and, and, uh, and other things. So, um, yeah, it, it ties right in with some of that stuff. Um, so the reactor, so be, the reactor, as but, he describes it in his in his story, when he's telling the story of being an S four, when Lazar kind of re, recants this half basketball shaped reactor 
and recounts the story of how he was there to replace a guy who inadvertently passed away. Uh, can you kind of go into the uh, the who is it Louis Sloten story and where where he may have gotten the genesis of that uh, of that highly yeah. imaginative creative story from? Well, some of the early Bob Lazar tapes you can see were filmed inside the Atomic Heritage Museum in 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 uh, Los, near Los Alamos, right? So Los Alamos, they have a museum there now to commemorate the Manhattan Project, and they tell the whole story of it. And there's there's a whole exhibit there on on, the, on Lewis Sloten and the Sloten accident with the Demon Corps, um, where not where they cut into it, but he was he was running supercriticality experiments with a beryllium half shell and a screwdriver, and the and the screwdriver uh, dropped out. Was supposed to keep that spacing, which was critical. Um, and when it dropped, it went it it went super critical and basically like released a ton of uh, Cherenkov radiation into the room, which irradiated the nine scientists who were standing there. Uh, Sloten and I think another guy, I forget his name, got it the worst. Um, but they ended up dying, the scientists, and uh, it's a big story, you know, and they, they, of course, had to be replaced. So when Bob tells that story about these two scientists that died while cutting into the, you know, reactor out of, air, out of S4, that he was hired to replace those two, well, you immediately have to look and well, this is 18-inch mandates. Any workplace fatality must be reported to OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Hazard Awareness Commission, within 48 hours. So why wasn't those deaths reported? And they should be in the OSHA logs, um, and they're not. So, well, you know what they're going to say. We're, we're outside the rules of OSHA is what they're going to say. But I yeah. think the, the more salient... they're written off is something else. But there's nothing. There's no other deaths in there that you could because I've looked into even other suspicious deaths that might have been and done in like a little bit of investigation around that time period into the other people that died on other, you know, things. And, and there's, there's nothing there either. You know, you'd be able to tell, oh, this guy died at a chemical plant, but he was a physicist. You know, there'd be something weird like that. You know what I mean? But it's not. There's not. And and I think the more salient point is you can draw a straight line to where he would come up with this highly imaginative story. Because when you hear him talk about it for the first time, and I was with you, so, you know, decades ago when the story first came out, I wanted to believe it. And since then, I spent a lot of time going back through all the old Art Bell interviews, basically finding anything he has said publicly and trying to use that as part and parcel with my analysis to determine which part of his stories are true and, and which part of his stories are false. Um, but the uh, the fact that you can now say, okay, here's where he likely came up with the idea of the, uh, of the reactor from the beryllium half shell. Here's where he said, okay, maybe they tried to cut into it with a plasma cutter and somebody died. Oh, that sounds just like the Louis Sloten story. Um, similarly, Element 115, right? That was known about before he proclaimed uh, to have seen it. And so it wasn't that much of a stretch. You know, Corbell always likes to use that as proof that Bob was right, that he was talking about Element 115 before anybody supposedly yeah. knew about it. But that's not the truth, yeah. is it? Yeah, there's a 1968 Scientific American article um, by Glenn Seaborg um, talking about the island of stability. Um, so that we this is in the public literature. And then... It's, it's interesting because Bob came out in May 1989 with the story. And then he, when he first came out with the story, he did not have 
he did not have the element 115 stuff. He didn't talk about the element 115 stuff until, you know, he came out with his whole um, real name. His first came out as Dennis in May 1989. And then it wasn't until uh, October of 1989 that he gave an interview with George Knapp. And he came out with his full name, Robert Scott Lazar. And, and, and that is when he first came, told the story about Element 115. Now, that's an interesting time time um, line because he didn't have the Element 115 stuff when he first came out. And then they're begging him to you know, come out with the whole story, you know. So he, it, it's interesting because in May 1989, Scientific American is an article about element 115 uh, and super heavy elements it talks about element 114 element 115 as being the um place where the island of stability peaks and there might be some super heavy you know super heavy elements that we could use uh for 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 other things and uh, i made a mistake on there saying it could be used for fuel because that wasn't in that article and i forget where but it's it's pretty it's pretty obvious when you look at that. If you can store that much energy inside a mass, then you could get that energy back and use that as fuel. So it's pretty self-explanatory that that is a potential fuel source for an alien spacecraft. So I, I think that it wouldn't be that hard if he was scrambling in May 1989 to come up with more information to, to weave a better story together. Um, that it's not impossible to believe that they read that article in Scientific American and got some ideas from it. Because I mean, how, how hard is it to debunk to debunk that? Except the, you know, and especially with the, with uh, back in the day, it was a lot harder to look up these these articles and find find these things. You right. Know? <laughs> this is before um, the internet. Before the internet, so so it was uh, definitely a good bluff on his part, as far as you know the story goes but uh other people have found that apparently you know george knapp knew about that and you know i asked him i asked george about knapp about this when i i met him at, in 2009 at alien con and he said that oh you know we found out about this years ago and we, we've already covered that but um you know it's not it's it's kind of like he uses this excuse of yeah we, we've already covered that um but it, it, it's not highlighted. You're still, you know, selling the whole story, but not like really doing, in, you know, a deep investigation to put all the pieces together to, to say, you know, is this is this legit or is this not? And uh, I've tried to do I've tried to do that for people. I've gotten a lot of hate for it, man. There was a ton of haters on that concrete podcast and still are. Um, but, you know, it's crazy. I haven't gotten any death threats, though. Um from, at least not from the uh, the Bob Lazar stuff. No, I don't um, think I don't think you will from uh, from my podcast either. When when we talk about, I just want to rewind a little bit. When we talk about Lazar's claimed education. People that follow the story know that he claims to have a master's from MIT and a master's from Caltech. Um, yeah. What I just want to know because you're a skeptic and you've looked at this very closely. What can you confirm about his education? and his time at Los Alamos versus what do you think is a complete lie? Well, he did work at Los Alamos and that's interesting because there's some connection with Teller there where he, he met Edward Teller after something and, and there was an article about him making the, with the rocket car and that he somehow impressed Teller and, and used that to get the job at, at area 51 or EG and G or, or, or that was allegedly his, his claim because Teller was deeply connected with a lot of these black programs and, and research stuff, you know, right. 
guy made the H bomb and stuff. So that's been one of the arg- arguments that um, has come out. Um, you know, and that's an interesting connection there. Uh, Teller's, you know, remarks about Bob are are interesting too. You know, why didn't why did he get so angry and defensive? And you know. Uh, other things, but yeah, so Bob definitely did work at the Meson physics facility, but according to the the book from Los Alamos, the phone book, he worked for Kirk Meyer Corporation, which did not hire physicists. They only hired electronics people, and so he might have been an electronics technician at Los Alamos, and that's further supported by you know the records we could find on his educational background, which was that he took a couple uh, – a year or two worth of classes at Pierce Junior College when that's when he was living in Woodland Hills, California. And and when he lived in Woodland Hills, California is when he used to ride that rocket bike around. And it turns out that the rocket bike and the rocket car come from this thing called the Gluhareff pressure jet engine, which was invented by one of his neighbors, um, Eugene Gluhareff. And it turns out that, yeah, the whole, the whole thing about that came, you know, came into play through that which was uh which was pretty interesting um so nothing tying him to mit or to uh caltech at all right no there's no uh evidence to prove that well all right so this is the deal with caltech is that um he did go to he did used to get dropped off I guess Jim Tagliani or one of his friends reports that, you know, Bob used to drop Bob off at, at Caltech, you know, where he used to go to classes. Um, so I guess Bob used to maybe sit in the lecture hall or go to Caltech and hang out the library or, or whatnot, you know, cause it's in San Diego there. Um, but I don't know that he actually went there. There's no evidence that he took classes there. Um, supposedly has, you know, a, a bachelor's degree from Caltech or, or MIT. Uh, oh, his bachelor's is from MIT, and then he had a master's degree from Caltech. And, of course, you look into the thesis, you know, you, in order to get a master's degree, you usually have to write a thesis. Right. And he claims his thesis was on elect, you know, magnetohydrodynamics. And, you know, you, you look into the literature on MHD, and, and you don't find him anywhere, um, uh, which is, you know, a problem, you know, for his story, you know, that in, that he can't reproduce that thesis or, or even, you know, if you supposedly defended this thesis at your, you know, dissertation, then you should have a good enough knowledge of it to be able to recreate it, even if it was destroyed or confiscated or classified or, or what, I don't know. Well, this is another thing that's interesting is, you know, you have a degree in physics, so you are uh, familiar probably more so than the lay person uh, with the world of physics, but maybe not as familiar with people that are deeply, deeply into, you know, whatever, super advanced uh, physics, but you can definitely hold your own for sure. When you listen to Lazar talk, um, what do you gather from the discourse that he uses? Do you gather that he has an understanding of the concepts that he's trying to talk about when he talks about gravity waves and he talks about, you know, warp drives and I mean, does he understanding it or is he just kind of using a science fiction-y kind of glossing over of everything? Um, that definitely comes out more with the chemistry stuff, you know, with the physics, we, we have people that have, you know, have the argument that, Oh, Bob was brought into an expediated physics program, which, you know, doesn't, the, 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 basically that they, they say that the, the, physics that I was taught in, in 
you know, college is, is wrong. And, you know, (laughs) simplified bullshit version that, that they give to everyone to confuse them and throw them on the wrong track with like string theory (laughs) and stuff. So, um, it was, you know, like, like, like the idea that string theory, you know, this is, this is kind of, you know, interesting because there there is some, you know, arguments for the, that string theory might've been, you know, a purpose diversion, you know, that a lot of grad students were pushed towards string theory uh, versus a, a lot of other more fruitful areas of research, like, you know, condensed matter physics and solid state physics and, and other stuff, you know, they were yeah. trying, everyone was trying to get to that theory of everything and the, and the deeper understandings of the universe and, and gravity and whatnot. Um, Eric would probably but, agree with you. Eric Weinstein would probably agree with you on that. You know, so this that this you know it, it's kind of silly to laugh at, but you know maybe you know may, there might be some reality to that. But I, I would think that if someone was educated by that school, they'd at least have some found, more found, foundations in, you know, quantum theory and solid state physics and, uh, you know, the things that he he describes working on. You know, like machines that are built atom by atom. You know, you you need solid state physics to understand. Uh, machines that are built like that because it's all about you know isotopes and the, the the spin-spin interactions and entanglement and a lot of physics that we didn't have you know back then but we're starting to understand now um, but you know so so yeah it, it's it comes out a lot and more in the chemistry when he's like going over like you know all the basics of stuff and in the, those early videos, there's a there's one old video I watched with Lazar where he's like taking the classroom physics professor approach, and it's it's just a really basic intro. Yeah, it seems get... to well, it seems to stand at odds with like the type of data, the type of very very rigorous data collection he would need to be doing if he really was trying to back engineer an alien air, aircraft, right? Right, and if if and also like you know if I'm worked on that program and I, and I want to convince the physics community and my peers are physicists. If you're a senior staff physicist, you, you know what it takes to convince your peers that, of, you know, what's legit, you know? So it, it seems to me that if he had deep knowledge that he would have gone right to that and hammered it, um, on it. And, um, but also I have some other people, you know, pointing out some things like, Oh, well, well how did Bob come up with the seven point, you know, four or six Hertz number? And I'm like, that's a Schumann resonance. That's easy, you know. Like he he weaved other like known constants and known things into his story just to you know. So so that they would later be you know people could use them to be like, oh well, how did he know about this and how did he know about that? And um, I haven't found anything yet. And uh, you know, taught one of my friends uh, and colleagues is 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 hammering away at this, but I, I you know. Uh, Ricardo Storti, he's like probably got the best, um, you know, one of the most scientific supports of Bob Lazar, but still he, he, some of his assumptions are, are a little off, I, I think. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to get him on eventually. He, he's, he's been reluctant to come on my podcasts and, and do a live stream with me going over all this. He keeps telling me, you know, watch these mountains of videos that I've made and I watch them and I find a lot of, you know, Thing, a lot of things that I, I, I have a problem with. Um, yeah, it's it, that's a whole rabbit hole. I got to go down a different time with, with uh, Ricardo. Um, but yeah, he, he's convinced that, you know, he's got a model that predicts all these things. And of course you can predict the Schumann resonance from your model because it's a real thing. And, you know, but 
doesn't mean that Bob had classified information because, you know, that was public knowledge, you know, back in 89. I haven't found anything in Bob's story that's like, aha, how did he know there was a gravity A wave and a B wave? You know, there's no like, you know, there's no big aha, like. Only he could know it, right, if his story was true. Right. Yeah, and that's that's really where you filled in a lot of the blanks with, you know, as far as I was concerned with the story. One of the other things I was talking to Mick West about was uh, the pay stub, the United States Naval Intelligence pay stub, and whether he thought it was authentic or not. And Mick hadn't looked into that. So when you said that you had found that Lazar, first off, the idea that he was working in the photo processing lab, which I knew, but that that provided him the means to falsify not only his ID badge, but also this pay stub. Uh, but then the W two, yeah. Then you revealed that on the W two, it was originally his wife's social security number that was on there. Is that correct? That's yeah. It's been altered. There's altered versions of it out there. But if you go back to the original one that he gave uh, to George Knapp as evidence, the social security number on that is is very strangely his first wife's. Right. So it's like, all right, well, what is that? Like, what what rational explanation would there be for that happening, right? Especially when supposedly there's such a rigorous, uh, you know, amount of background checks and things like that, that that ostensibly they would have to do to keep this in order. And all of a sudden they're just going to slip up and put his wife's social security number on his W-2. I don't think so. But it's also weird that why why would Bob put his wife's on there? Why wouldn't he just like change one number in his or, or, or like, I don't know, like do something, you know, change, you know put a fake number in there completely, you know, completely random or fake number. Why, you know, that's another just puzzling, uh, mysteries. Have you ever, have you ever been able to track down? And I don't know if these people really exist or not, but one of the things I always found fascinating was Bob's willingness to use Barry Castillo or Castillo's full name and Dennis Mariani, the two people he constantly refers to by their full names for whatever reason. Uh, are those real people? Have have you found anything on them? Are they out there somewhere, or do you think he's just making them up? Yeah, and then uh, Corbell claims that he found Mike Thigpen through Facebook, the guy who did sec- Lazar's security background check, and that he talked to Mike and confirmed that, you know, he did the check on Lazar. But what is the evidence for that, man? It's like no sources, no, like, proof. It's just, yeah, well, the guy didn't <laughs> want to go on record, but he told me, and he confirmed it, and... And I made sure of it. And it's like, sure you did, buddy. I don't, you know, like, great journalism here, man. I don't plenty, know. Plenty Let's... of footage of Jeremy Corbell, like, typing text messages to Bob and his phone on uh, in the movie, you know. But, like, w- when it comes yes. time for the evidence that this guy actually produced the security check for Lazar. And didn't somebody then circle back with this? Because Mike Thigpen's a real guy. Didn't somebody circle back with him? And, like, ask him questions about it. And he was like, I don't remember, you know. Did, did you tell Jeremy Corbell this? And, and he came out and said, I don't I don't remember ever saying that or something. I have no idea. I never heard that. As far as I knew, you know, Mike Thigpen was a made-up name and, and, and that I could not find him myself on Facebook as a, as a real person. And, I, you know, I asked Jeremy Corbell, you know, hey, can you get me in touch with this guy so I can, you know, independently verify? That would, you know, at least, you know, even – I can't go on record and say anything. It would at least be worth something to the community. I wish I could remember where I heard that now. It may have been. I could have swore it was you on the on the Concrete podcast where you're talking about 
Um, the difference between what Corbell claims this guy told him versus somebody else who went back to try to verify it with him, and they and he told another person that maybe he had spoken to Corbell, but he doesn't remember what he said or something like that. Maybe it was Danny who said that. I think Danny Danny had mentioned that. But that yeah, that's that, that's interesting because I I gotta look into that because I never I don't know if he ever sent me the source for that or uh, yeah I'll 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 circle back on that one and and do some more investigation. Anything on Barry Castillo, who was his supposed lab partner, or Dennis Mariani, who was supposedly his boss at S four? Yeah, again, you know, like. They either didn't publish it. You know, you go on archive.org or Google Scholar and search for those names. You know, you should have some kind of publications of, you know, physics literature by those guys, you know, even in unrelated fields of their non-classified work before they got recruited or or other stuff. Um, they must be re really super secret, you know. Then I don't know, like, you got to, like, I don't know. The only other way to, to, to really find out would you'd have to go to like the, the graduating class books for like so many years and try to find those names in any of the physics graduate programs, you know, like you, you're going to find these people in physics, graduate school physics programs at like, right. Usually at, you know, top universities. There's a, there's a couple of them. I could probably put them, put a list of them. It wouldn't take too long or be too hard to go and go through that and see, you know, hey, did anyone graduate between, uh, let's say, 1975, or maybe, you go, I don't know, you go back further, 71, you know, to where where would the graduates be? So you probably have a 20-year career, right, from the time you graduated till, till 1989, right? So that's 60, you know, 79, 69. So 1969 to 1989, go back to all those years, to all those schools, and and, and find the physics graduates. And right. you can find, you can show me that there was names of th these real people. Then you know, then we can do, then we can start from there. Maybe I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I'm trying to think of how we could attack this one from an, an investigative standpoint. You know. Well, and then another question, another really one of the paradoxical points of the whole Lazar story is his consistent incessant claim that he's not doing this for the money and he didn't even let Joe Rogan fly him out for the podcast and you know he doesn't want to be doing it you know when Corbell has to step in and interrupt uh the conversation there because Bob Lazar can't remember the answer to a question that Rogan asked him he said well you know Bob doesn't want to be here and Bob gets a lot of shit and you know Bob doesn't want to do this yet he keeps turning up which which i find fascinating you know it's like the david fravor thing uh mick west is saying you know he claims to not want to be in the spotlight but i saw him on the top of a float in a ufo parade in new orleans or something you know like as like the headmaster of the parade you know just trying to keep a low profile and i'm wondering i want to move the discussion into corbell a little bit but like i'm i'm wondering like what you see yeah. as as motivation here and then kind of start to tie it into uh into what you make of jeremy corbell well yeah there's a lot of um people that attempt to show humility in the public face but you know are really very arrogant it seems in their actions 
you know. So actions do speak louder than words, and anytime it comes to this stuff, you know. And Gorbel's a, a man of a lot of words, I'll, I must say. Um, I've never heard anyone that can talk so much without with saying while saying so little. <laughs> I mean, it's true. He's never met an unsubstantiated claim that he doesn't love. I mean, and I and I I follow him on Twitter, and I just see his tweet, and every tweet is like, "This is it." We've got it, you know, tonight, unweaponized, finally, full disclosure. We can't turn back. David Garush, testimony in front of Congress. This is, this is it. We have crossed the Rubicon, and then it always just turns out to be a fart in a stiff wind. You know, there's, there's never yeah. any substantive evidence. It's a lot of overhyping, under-delivering, and um, it's, a, it's a strategy uh, I would – I look at all that stuff anytime I, you know, the people who speak the truth and the real whistleblowers uh, get shadow banned and get blocked, you know, and get like outcasts. And this, the whistleblowers I see and the people that get on Fox news and Joe Rogan five times now, um, those people I, I tend to be, I have more questions about the people that are being given the limelight and being shown off in the, in the very, very public sphere to a lot of people. Right. Um, anytime that that happens, you always, you have to be, I mean, the church committee in, in the seventies taught us about operation mockingbird. And then the big six corporation merger that happened in the early two thousands and, and to what, where we are today, it's, it's shouldn't be any surprise to people that, the news that you're getting from 90% of the mainstream sources is highly censored, highly filtered, and in many cases, absolute pure propaganda. Right. So um, when I look at Jeremy Corbell, I look at, you know, this guy's got a huge ego. He's this hype man that's into, you know, quantum yoga and, um, <laughs> You know, I don't know what he did before he got into UFOs. Apparently, from what I've learned, he, he was a maintenance person at his parents' uh, apartment complex. You know, so he talks about, oh, I'm, in, I'm into real estate and I do real estate now. Well, real estate's kind of his background, I guess. Uh, he, he, You know, if you can call on clogging tenants' toilets, real estate. Um, but... <laughs> Uh, he then he then for a period of time he wanted to become a filmmaker. Got borrowed a bunch of money from his family to you know buy some camera equipment and uh, and then he left California and went to Las Vegas to go uh, live at John Lear's house, sleep on John Lear's couch for a number of years, and that's kind of how he met George Knapp and got his foot in the door with all this this other stuff. Um, but, you know, John Lear is. Uh, you know, the CIA pilot and um, one of the biggest disinformation agents in, I think, you know, his, in, in recent history. I mean, the guy was just, uh, he was, he had his hand in, in UFOs, um, and all kinds of stuff. I mean, he, he didn't, he, he, he was, I had conversations with John Lear where he was convinced that there were people living on the surface of the sun and, and the government was covering that up. <laughs> it's like, uh, it was some wild stuff John Lear was into. Um, 
but yeah, I guess that's that's the whole history behind where Corbell came from. Made that his first film about you know the the whole um, alien implants thing, and did a terrible job with that, by the way. There's, and, there's, uh, so there's got to be there's got to be yeah, and I know, and the Lazar film was just. You know, I had never heard of him, and I, knowing the story, I was so excited that somebody was doing a documentary, just like I was when Lazar wrote the book, thinking, okay, finally, somebody's going to clear all this shit up. And it's like, yeah. no, no, even if you're Lazar and you're given time to produce a book, Jeremy, wouldn't you say, all right, here's a great spot for me to get my fucking story straight once and for all. I can put dates to the things and whatever, and the book's just the same bullshit that he's been telling everybody it's vague, no dates. It's not no quite. There is a lot, there are some new things, you know, so everyone says that, oh, Bob's never changed his story, but he does change his story. And there are things that were added to that book and added to the, the new interviews that didn't appear anywhere in the original testimonies or, or, or any, any of the interviews. Right. What were, so what let's, were those let's, let's go over those things. So one of them, one of those things was, uh, the issue of archeological digs. So nowhere did he mention that these things, you know, these were crashes that were recovered. Nowhere did he mention that, you know, we dug these things up from archaeology, you know. So that was new. Um, then the whole thing about, he added in the book about there's a dial underneath that you turn and it shuts the gravity amplifier off because, you know, there are people that pointed out um, that his story didn't make sense that, you know, well, first off, he says he can't get his hand near the basketball at the center of this, you know, reactor, that there's a gravity field. It's like a force field shield that literally your hand just stops and you can't go beyond it, you know? So then how did he open the thing up and work on it? Well, and then he adds this part in the story that there's, oh, there's a, there's a dial on the underneath, you know, that you turn and that shuts it off. So that, that allows him to be able to get in there and actually work on the thing. And, <clears throat> That's what a couple people actually pointed out. So it's, it's interesting. Uh, we had a playlist of all like the inconsistencies that in Bob's old testimony. Yeah, we had like a whole playlist of all like the key parts of Bob's old story where, where you know, and basically uh, that playlist got taken down systematically right after the movie came out when we started really getting the playlist going and we were sharing it around on all of Corbell's pages, all of Corbell's things, you know, trying to, you know, get information out about, about Bob Lazar. And then Corbell of course blocks us and bans us, you know, says we're trolls and spammers and, and disinformation agents, you know, when really we're, we're like trying to get real information out to the, the people. Trying to get the evidence, right you know, getting duped by this guy. And, um, and he says that I'm a, he, he made a couple of comments that I was an obsessed fan, you know, like I'm not a fan of yours at all. <laughs> yeah. I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed with the truth. And, and the fact that your line has me pissed off and, and, and no, that's jealousy. I'm not pissed off. I'm not genuinely mattering. I'm jealous now. It's like the, the language that the, his defenders and these people use is, was just like, yeah, it shows you how self-absorbed they are. And I'm just like, all right, well, look, I believe this thing too until I did my real investigation. And like, look, I've talked to <laughs> way more scientists and way more real people. Like I've got like the real story. It's, it's, and people don't want that because it's like a college class. It's like sitting through lectures and it's boring and it's education and it's learning like a lot of deep physics and science and maths and, you know, uh, <laughs> 
real real information you know uh and they just want entertainment it seems it's like it's it's really sad well no that's um, that's really the truth too and and you know I, i'm not sure if you know but my my podcast is mostly financial stuff and it's very similar in the world of finance investors would rather have a great story you know here's a company that's going to change the world then focus on all right well what does the balance sheet and the cash flow statement look like and are they actually profitable or are they actually generating cash because if you ask a question like that it's like oh dude you're just a hater you know it's like no i'm just trying to get to the fundamentals here and you're doing the same thing right you're just trying to get to the fundamentals how come we don't have a copy of his thesis right how come he doesn't turn up anywhere in anything involving mit you know like it, and so those questions are just the basics that's that's not even rigorous due diligence that's that's the bare minimum of what somebody would be expected to provide so i guess also what i want to know is like where's the just got to be cash moving around here, right? Like under it all and all the modesty and uh, I'm not doing this for any type of money. And you know, we're, it's all about disclosure and blah, 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 blah. There's gotta be fucking money moving around here somewhere because when they show Lazar, he's in this nice house. I know he's got his United nuclear. Um, he's got a 14 acre horse farm in North Oregon. Yeah, how does that happen, Jeremy? <laughs> yeah, I have the address. I won't give it out publicly, you know, because I'm not, you know, I'm not going to do that. But I know where he, I know where he's he's at, man. And how do you afford that? Maybe he made a lot of money on United Nuclear. You know, he does run, you know, that lab supply company, and uh, they do good things, man. They got they offer a lot of hard to find and hard to get products. You know. Yeah like the thallium that the guy used to kill his wife, which was the real reason that the FBI raided the, the, the um, United Nuclear. So I didn't get to mention that on Concrete. Oh, is that right? But... Yeah, what happened with that? Because that that was the be opening scene in the documentary, yeah, was that right? They, oh, he... they, there was a raid on on United Nuclear. Why is the FBI raiding United Nuclear? Oh, because Bob's talking to Jeremy Corbell about the Element 115, and they still know they still think he has it, and they're still looking for it, right, after all these years. That's the real reason that, you know, they, they, they raided this according to Jeremy Corbell, right? Yeah, that well that's how he that's how he put it forth in the movie, as though the government right. was raiding him to shut him up. You know, and they made a big, long, dramatic oh my god, ten minute long scene in the beginning of the movie. I'm like, fuck me, like where's the rest of the movie? You know, like Jesus. It's yeah, all- it's this FBI raid, and they're hype. See how oh, it's all hype, and then there's no substance delivered. It's like, all right, you could at least, you know, you could at least have shown that in addition to the, you know, FBI showing up with the warrant that they had with local law enforcement who were there. You know, where's like, you know, was there a guy with the from the Atomic Energy Commission with a badge there? That would right. be like. That would be great, you know, if you're like, oh, well, what was, you know, why was NASIC there or why was the OSI there, right? Like I show, I showed there was a, there was a, there was a student that was arrested for bringing paperwork home from Wright State University, and I covered this on my website. And um, the original first article that was released in the news claimed that oh, it was just a guy who was busted for growing marijuana. He had a marijuana grow, and you know it was just the DEA that. There, um, looking for his weed plants, right? That's not the real story. It wasn't the DEA. It was the Air Force OSI who was there, and so like they put out a cover story, a fake story at first, 
And when it was really the OSI that was there at the house in Fairborn, Ohio, um, to confiscate documents, this guy, Isaac Kemp, ended up doing a year in, in federal prison for bringing document, classified you know, information home. And he's a real physicist. He's got a real PhD. And, he, and I went and you can look him up on Wright State's website and find that, oh, my God, he's got a real math. He's got a real thesis. And he wrote his thesis in terahertz wave uh, technology which is the same stuff that, you know, Tom DeLong was talking about on when he was first talking to these DOD guys about the UFO program, you know, when he went for, when Tom first went on Joe Rogan, you know, he was talking about terahertz stuff and well, there's classified work going on right, you know, at, at our, at right next to NASIC right there at right Patterson air force base on, on, uh, on terahertz wave stuff. Um, and that's, that's interesting when you see something like that because there's always like a disinformation thing put out, you know, first. But but in that case, there's still the truth. There's still the reality that you can go, you know, get the warrants. You can go, you know, and find out that, oh, well, it, the warrant does not say, you know, it was the DEA looking for marijuana plants. It was it was the OSI looking for classified documents related to classified research. That so what, what what was the FBI raid actually about when they raided Lazar's place? So when you look up the actual, we have the uh, police report and the, the warrant for the raid, and the actual raid from for that was for thallium. Um, they were looking for thallium. Because apparently, and one of the things that, um, one of the rare things, hard to get scientific uh, sources, you know, you can get thallium from Bob Lazar. Of course, thallium is poisonous and it's, you know, illegal to sell. Um, so the, there's a lethal dose amount and you're not actually allowed to buy that. So they cannot sell thallium in legal, lethal doses. But what you can do is you can buy you know, it's a tenth of the lethal dose. So you can buy 10 orders of the thallium and then combine that, and now you've got a lethal dose. So apparently that's what the, this guy did. He ordered a bunch of this stuff that you're only supposed to get in limited quantities, and uh, and it was used in a murder because mm. it's because it's hard to trace. It's one of those, you know, it's one of those CIA black uh, assassin, you know, tools that not a lot of people know about, but now they do, thanks to Bob Lazar and the FBI raid that Jeremy Corbell blew up, the thing that was about 115. <laughs> so, all right, well, I have to, you know, I have to release some some dangerous classified, inf- actual dangerous classified information to show that this guy's not telling the truth about, you know, classified information he claims to possess. So, um, yeah, it's just, that's just the way it is. Yeah, and you're kind of screwed if you're the government because if you if you intervene to shut him up or you arrest him, it's gonna be it's gonna be passed off as retaliation. He he almost his story is probably almost so stupid to the powers that be that it probably just flies right under the radar, right? I mean, in trying to distinguish why he's just out right under out. the radar. No, 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 no. But it, this is for the powers that be. They love it. They oh, absolutely right? couldn't. They they couldn't relish in better. There's no better disinformation than organic. You know, <laughs> <You're> right? <laughs> it's it's just great. You know, they're like, all right, dude, let's put this guy on Joe Rogan. Let's plaster this guy around. Let let's put him in front of Congress. Yeah. If they could, I'm sure they would. They would love to, but they can't put Bob in front of Congress because you know Bob's of course would plagiarize himself if he made those claims and. 
in, in uh, that yeah, setting. Can't have another migraine. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Um, so what they do is they, they have, I, I, I think the whole thing in Congress is, is kind of a stage set up too, because you look at what they're doing with Jeremy Corbell in the mainstream media is they're putting him out there as this crusader of truth and ufology. And then he's going to, you know, put this forward and like, like, dude, let's like what all the real researchers have been doing, like, 10, 20 years before Corbell ever came around or on the scene as we were here doing that, you know, with no recognition, but then Corbell gets all this crazy recognition. And then his, his evidence, his talking points and, and his uh, misdirection is what gets the attention from Congress in these, in these yeah. massive hearings. So now they're like wasting their fucking time dealing with this asshole's complete bullshit. Right. Instead of getting to core issues, real information and real evidence, they're just completely, you know, running fucking circles trying to keep up with Corbell, who can who can make up bullshit faster than the Pentagon could possibly debunk it. <laughs> yeah, it's true, too. Oh, it's so succinctly and beautifully put. So this is like it, it, the Pentagon loves this because they can hype this fucking asshole up who knows absolutely nothing. And they can, you know, get him to continuously hype his audience up because he's so he's so hyped up on the adrenaline of having all this attention on him. Yeah. You know, his ego is going crazy. He's like, "Yes, I have all, I, and I'm going to be the one to do it." And Grush is going to be the guy that, that's going to that's going to you know break disclosure. And I'm going to I'm going to be the one to help out with all this. And it's like, dude, you don't realize you're part of the cover up operation. And Congress is going to be so sick and tired of this subject by the time they're done with your bullshit that they're not going to look at this thing for another 50 years, another 60, years. A better question years. is, like, what are you doing there? You know, like, when, when he did the... I was excited when Lazar did the interview with Rogan because I was like, all right, here's going to be a couple hours of new testimony that maybe I can use to try to figure out this clusterfuck a little bit better. But, yeah. you know, the whole interview, I'm just thinking, what is this guy sitting next to him for? What is he... It was the same thing when, you know... And look, I like George Knapp for whatever he gets right and wrong and however much he knows and is purposely, you know, not coming forward with. I don't really give a shit because I kind of like George Knapp. There's something about him. I like listening to him talk. I think he's all right. But, you know, when, yeah. when Rogan did the interview with George Knapp and Jeremy Corbell, I'm like, what the fuck is Corbell doing there? Like, what? why is this guy always in the sidecar? You know, just kind of like, what is what is he bringing to the table? You know, and I was always, you know, curious because he refers to George Knapp as his mentor and that he's the protege, right? So that couldn't have been more I, – I, my, my, my view on that was turned around after the hearings. When I saw Corbell and, and Knapp at the hearings, you know, Knapp's sitting there scrunched up, barely any room, and kind of like with this real sad look on his face, like he's not going to be the one to give bring disclosure to the public – and Corbell's sitting there, like, all spread out, you know, dressed like he's ready to go to, you know, Texas Roadhouse, uh, not in a suit, not in a tie. And and I was just like, wow, maybe maybe, maybe it's possible that Corbell is, is the one in charge now and that Knapp is now not – Knapp is not, you know, not the mentor that maybe. Corbell's – I don't know. It, it's just kind of interesting. Well, he's doing appearances now by himself on Rogan, Corbell. And he's got the, he's got that connection to to Mueller too. And then he calls him Chuck. You know, like I know his name is Charles Charles, um, uh, not Mueller. What's his name? Charles. 
was his name Charles Muller? The guy, the guy who was next to uh, Corbell at the hearing. Oh, I don't uh, know. He's Grush's attorney. He's Grush's attorney. Okay. In any case, you know, his name's Charles, oh, Charles McCullough. And, um, you know, that's what I know him as because I did the research on, you know, the internet. But when Corbell talks about him, he calls him Chuck. So he's on like a, he's on a very personal and first name basis with this, this guy. Um, so I just wonder what Corbell's role and overall thing is in this because it looks to me so far that he's been a complete you know red he's been there to just throw out red herrings and and get the rest get all the dogs barking you know up the wrong trees that's that's what he looks like to me he's done so far he hasn't produced anything legit i have 20 better scientists than lazar who've given their full disclosure and testimony through uh, presentations on apec or my channel and and um, they've gotten shadow banned and very little views. And this guy gets on Fox News and Joe Rogan and, and all these big platforms to promote bullshit. It's like, come on, come on. What, what's really going on? Yeah, I don't know. We need to get you on Joe Rogan. Like, that would be a great. <laughs> it really would. No, it would be, you know, and and look, because Lazar is never going to, you know, Eric volunteered to, I guess, moderate a debate or to go on Rogan and, and have a debate with Lazar to kind of check out his credentials you know because eric weinstein obviously is uh understands what the fuck he's talking about i mean he's a theoretical physicist and then you know one of an insanely gifted mathematician and i mean he knows this shit in and out so it, it would probably take less than 30 seconds for him to get in there and fire off two questions and once lazar didn't know the answer to either one of them it would be evident um but yeah, I mean it would be great to have you on as just kind of like a, a counterbalance because I just I and I you know I'd like to give Joe credit and think that he goes into these things with an open mind and and that I think that you know he had his mind changed on chemtrails, he had his mind changed on a cup on the moon landing. You know, I think one episode with you and I think he comes out of that looking at this completely uh differently. So if anybody's listening that's got those contacts get in touch with Jeremy Riss, assuming you would like to do that, would you? Yeah, I don't know, man. That's that's a huge platform. I get a lot a lot of uh, eyeballs on that. Um, you know, Brett Weinstein's already talked to Joe about this, and Joe Rogan follows me on Twitter, so I right. hope he's, like, kind of, you know, aware that I exist in some of my research, I, I hope. Um, but you know, I don't know whether the time is ready for that or, or what's going on with the whole, because there's somebody who's in charge of Joe's. Um, it's interesting. I watched a bunch of things on this because it's like, who's in charge of Joe's booking and his production? You know, who, who decides who gets to come on invited as a guest on Joe Rogan podcast. And that's important because I don't think it's actually Joe who decides those things. Oh, I think it is. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is. Just from listening to the context of how some of the guests talk, like Bill Maher that was just on, you know, just said to him, oh, you noticed that I was in town and you reached out or something. I, I think I think Joe actually is probably directly, if not nearly directly responsible. I think he probably picks and chooses the guests and the dates and, and somebody else arranges all the other bullshit. But well, what uh, about Spotify, you know, and, and their editorial? Oh, do they have any editorial oversight or they, – they really, you know, there was a whole big controversy with, you know, obviously all the ivermectin stuff and all of the, uh, you know, when when Rogan started to first undergo all of the hate speech 
nonsense years ago, and I think they just let him fly. They appended some of his episodes with warnings, and there were one or two of them that I think Joe chose to take down himself, but I think he's pretty much got a wide berth. He took the Tom DeLonge one down. Wow, Tom DeLonge is a fucking maniac. I mean, I have have (laughs) never seen somebody so obviously on cocaine as he was during that episode. I I have no clue what to make of that episode. He was super hyped, man. He was, yeah, yeah. That was a that was a strange episode for sure. Dude, that one went off the rails real quick, man. Real quick. It was like hello, and then immediately after that, everything was fucked. I was just like, oh my god, two hours into it, and I think you're thinking like, Tom DeLonge, like, who is this? You know, it. I think it. I'm trying to remember who it was, but somebody on one podcast that I was listening to was saying anybody can just become a ufologist. You know, anybody, you just put that on your name. You don't need any qualifications. There's no degree for it. Nobody's checking to see if you have a physics degree. Like you're saying, Jeremy Corbell was unclogging toilets. And then all of a sudden now he's the, he's the nation's most foremost expert on uh, on UAPs. Yeah. Like, uh, OK, <laughs> you know, uh, look, one of the last things I want to talk to you about, and I, I appreciate your time uh, and I know my listeners do, too, uh, with your physics background. You know, I, I've heard you talk about 9-11. I've heard you talk about a lot of the different quote-unquote coincidences with the agencies and the organizations that were in the buildings and who was running security and the, you know, the ties to SAIC and all those things. I, I want to kind of – I'll direct my listeners to your to your interview um, with Brett and Michael Shermer to listen to a little bit more than that. And I think you talked about it also on the concrete podcast, but what I want to no, we didn't get to nine 11. I, I, we, we left it out on the concrete podcast altogether. Um, but yeah, I did get into a little bit on Brett's podcast. If you want to see some other podcasts where I get into it deep, um, you can go watch me on tragedy and hope with Richard Grove. Oh, that might be the one I was thinking of. Um, I did an interview on Richard Grove's, um, channel where we, we really got deep into it and then i also did an interview with richard gage on richard gage unleashed that where, um, that's what i'm thinking of that's the one i listened to richard gage unleashed his new yes. podcast i have that one saved. all right so i i want to you know i'll direct people to those the one with gage is like two hours long so that's a great listen i want to hone in on the one thing that has always bothered me about 9-11 always gage For, got his channel taken down after that interview they they hit him right? with some yeah, he had to like fight to get it back up, and he was like a little bit spooked about that afterwards. No kidding, I didn't know that. Yeah, the, but yeah, go on. The, the well, the one thing that has always stuck out the most for me, and there's been a lot of questions: the the cell phone calls from the plane, the fact that we don't have clear footage of the plane hitting the Pentagon. There's a million things we could talk about, but the thing that always stood out to me, always was I remember on 9-11, there was a presumed assumption on television that Building 7 was going to come down before it came down. There were people yep. saying the building's going to come down, that they're preparing for the building to come down. Yeah, the BBC and, with Jane Stanley, right? Yep, but it was also on... Yep. I mean, everybody knows about the BBC report, but it was also just being talked about... I think I was watching Fox News... As though it wasn't assumed it was being evacuated because of that. And then all of a sudden, you know, it collapses the way that it does 
which obviously looks as looks like a controlled demolition. I know on the other side of the building it looked differently than than the footage uh, that most people see with the penthouse collapsing and everybody else. But I want your perspective on that and, and anything else you'd like to talk about, just because you were in physics class when it happened, you are a physics major. Um, and if you could start with, with building seven and then you can go really wherever the hell you want. Yeah. I was a freshman when this happened and we watched the towers come down on TV. And when that happened, I was, the whole classroom was convinced that this was, you know, a demolition and it had to have been either pre-planned or, or done by like the Russians or we didn't know who, who was responsible or who did it the first day of it, you know, and I kind of didn't think about it for years later until I saw an interview that um, Jeff King of MIT gave where he talked about some of the, you know, problems he had with uh, the collapse of the towers and stuff. And then, you know, you had the official stories come out like the Bazant hypothesis and, and, um, and then the head engineer over there at MIT uh, was his name. Um, sorry, I'm gonna probably no uh, coming to thinking of this guy's name. Um, oh no 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 no! <laughs> it's on the tip of my tongue, man. I I have it. I can't. Take your time. I, can't I can edit. It. I can edit it out. Egar Thomas Egar, yeah Thomas Egar of MIT, who did the engineering stuff. Some of the early engineering. Um, commentary on how the buildings collapse and stuff so i've been following that whole argument back and forth for for a long time uh was anticipating you know the release of the nist reports when those came out um the one on building seven took eight years for them to complete it didn't i don't think it came out until yeah 2008 2009 they didn't uh finally release that too um because it was very difficult for them to explain how building seven collapsed right and in fact, they did not explain how Building Seven collapsed. They explained what could have led up to its collapse, and then just claimed that it, you know, you know, catastrophically just took the whole building down. And didn't really explain the full. And, and then the the uh, in the in this report that they did release, the models that they came out with had all this twisting and bending of the structure, which you know were not observed at all in the uh, physical collapse on video. No, they weren't. It really, it really came straight down into its own footprint. So there's lots of technical and you know scientific issues that people have taken up with that NIST report, um, which of course you look into the people who wrote that report. Uh, and you realize, well, these were all scientists who were also employees for SAIC, which is a government military defense contractor, which you know has a serious conflict of interest in you know writing a report that would you know implicate that these buildings were pre-wired for controlled demolition because that would mean someone had prior knowledge of the attacks and it wasn't a surprise attack by Al Qaeda as uh, you know claimed by the perpetrators. Um, so it's, it's sort of, uh, you know, interesting when you look into SAIC, SAIC is present day Lidos Corporation, right? And Lidos Corporation makes all the scanners for our airports. So if you go to the airport right. and you go through the scanner at the airport, it says that you look at, look at the logo that it has on the side of it. It should say Lidos Corporation, which is SAIC, which benefited from 9-11, right? Because now all the airports have to have these scanners, which costs a ton of money to maintain, operate, fix, you know, it's all proprietary stuff. So, so you see how the, the people that benefited most greatly from the crime uh, were, were the ones hired to participate in the cover-up. 
So it's not necessarily that the SAIC scientists themselves were made the thermite or planted the bombs in the buildings, but they certainly helped, you know, the, 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 the government not investigate thermite properly, not investigate, you know, the claims, you know, to, to handle this as a fire safety investigation and, and to not ask any, like, real hard, detailed questions that might lead to uncomfortable answers of things that they're trying to cover up. So it's, 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 um, you look at that, it, it sheds a different light on, on the government's investigation and how they conducted those investigations into 9-11. Of course, the 9-11 commission doesn't mention Building 7 at all. It pretends like it doesn't even exist. Wow. And also didn't look into the issue of 9-11 financing. Nothing was mentioned on the 9-11 financing. And then we later found out that, oh, there was 28 pages that were classified uh, uh, as to, and those 28 pages dealt with the financial aspects of who funded the hijackers and how did they get you know, their, their money to go to strip clubs and do cocaine and, and, and other things in the you know, months before 9-11 that these devout Islamist extremist Muslims allegedly, you know, we're doing, um, according to the official theory, you know. So it's very a lot of the facts that have been you know and pointed out and investigated about the hijackers and their activities in the U.S. Uh, this is covered in you know Daniel Hopsicker's Venice Flying Circus and another um, journalism, uh, you know, like um, the Sarasota Five and uh, and all that stuff. Um, yeah, the, the the money came through the Saudis, and the Saudi connections for that money supply uh, lead directly to the Bush administration. Like this is Bandar bin Sultan, who's a good friend of the Bush administration, who's directly implicated, involved in in, in the in nine eleven. Um, which is, you know, it's amazing that nobody in our media or our government justice system DOJ or anyone else has the balls to like really go after this or track this one down. And it's just been kind of like people take this attitude like, Oh God, this can't be true. And I'm just going to not, I'm going to pretend it doesn't exist and ignore it uh, rather than, you know, address the issues. And, you know, like Michael uh, Shermer, I don't think he'd investigated nine 11 in, in years. It didn't, it didn't look like he hadn't, he hadn't really looked into JFK or nine 11 years. And it was evident from the questions I asked him. Yeah, and it's the opposite of what people accuse conspiracy theorists of doing, because people will say, oh, you're just inventing a conspiracy because you're unable to grapple with the reality of what actually happened. And so you're having like a PTSD moment where you shift into an alternate reality to try to justify things that seem like they're beyond reason. And right. you know, that's what that's what conspiracy theorists always get. Uh, you know, charged with. But in this case, it's like, all right, there's also, you know, when are when are we going to be able to uh, when are we going to be able to look at the facts and also address the things that didn't come up in the 9-11 commission report and, and all of the things that you point out? Right. I mean, what do you think are some of the other just biggest red flags from 9-11 as a whole? If you're teaching a 101 course on asking critical questions about 9-11, uh, and we'll leave we'll leave this as our kind of our last talking point here because I know you have to go. But for well, my yeah, listeners, that's interesting you say that because some someone someone texted me and was like, "Oh, you 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 messed up when you, you claimed that there was no CIA in Building Seven, and I started getting all these sources. So that was wrong. There was CIA in Building Seven. Uh, I don't know why I screwed up on that. I should I should have known better. And, and well, 
but uh, it was it was a good mistake to make because it's I like when people correct me on that sort of thing. Um, it, in any case, uh, you know, someone pointed out, you know, you got to make sure you have all this stuff, you know, one hundred percent bulletproof because they might ask you to testify in front of Congress one day about this, right? You know, and and then you got to make sure, damn sure, you have everything, you know, all the wrinkles ironed out when you go in there, um, and. Um, as far as that goes, uh, it's, it's, yeah, if I had to put a whole list together of like the top things to really dig into and look over, number one would be the continuity of government program, which, you know, in the disaster scenario planning think tanks, which, uh, I think is where nine 11 was first born. That's where the, the nine 11 plot was first hatched. You know, you have the 1979 Dawson field hijackings, multiple hijack an aircraft at one time and then you have other instances where you know planes could be used as missiles all this stuff was known to our disaster scenario planners that worked for these think tanks you know so it's not hard to imagine a 9-11 like scenario especially when you read 1961 pentagon documents like operation northwoods right right um it's not right. too difficult of a scenario to imagine uh, for our leaders to to know about this and protect us from such a thing, and and to think of all the things that could go wrong, and this was their job to literally plan for that. So those people are suspect number one, um, as far as a my hop scenario goes. Um, there is a lot of other players who looks like were involved on a lie hop basis though, you know, where they were like, Oh, well, I'm aware of this, but we're just going to let it slide or we're going to have lax investigations. You know, the CIA dropping the ball in the August 16th memo or the warnings from able danger or, um, you know, all, all the other, you know, warnings and implications that we had that were like ignored by these agencies or that the intelligence that just didn't connect, you know, because guys like F FBI agent John O'Neill, who were experts on the case, were being blocked from their investigation to the point where they got so fed up they quit and uh, took other positions. And, you know, John O'Neill was, of course, took the position to go work in the towers for the security on 9-11. And his story is, I think, essential to understanding the bigger picture in 9-11. Who killed John O'Neill and why was John O'Neill murdered? Because it wasn't Al-Qaeda that killed John O'Neill. And if Al-Qaeda planned the attack on the Pentagon, they would have struck the north wing of the Pentagon uh, if they even were able to get that close to it. They wouldn't have struck the west wing of the Pentagon where the financial accounting office was that had recently been refurbished and had offices moved around and all kinds of construction going on there. So occupancy was at an all-time low. So the least amount of people would die in that wing of the building. So that's, that's the wing I would attack if I was planning an inside job. Um, not if I was a terrorist would have attacked a different wing. So there's a lot of key arguments which um, show you. Oh, did I lose you? Oh, hold on a second. I got. I got. I had another call coming in. Um, no, I'm still here. Uh, okay. But yeah, there's there's um there's a number of those interesting coincidences that come up, and then the whole issue of the 1993. World Trade Center bombing. When you tie it back to Ted Gunderson's testimony, FBI agent Ted Gunderson, you know, talked about the, the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, how, how that was set up by these forces within FBI and intelligence. Um, 
that connects a lot of the pieces of the puzzle because the 93 World Trade Center bombing is how they got access to the blueprints to rebuild the buildings. It's how they knew where to target them and how to target them and what kind of structural damage they and resistance they had to bombs. Um, so that was a key part of the whole thing because they, they tried to do it. They tried to bring that tower down. They tried to bring the whole tower down in, in 93 and they failed. Right. Yeah. And they went and got the Tridata Corporation was the one that got the engineering documents and, engin- and, and rebuilt the whole thing. So when they, when they, they knew with all that information, how to take it down in, in 20 in 2001. And that was who had the technical information about how to take those towers down and, and, and who was the first suspect that I would look at in a subpoena or an investigation, um, a real investigation, not, not one of these fake government led investigation cover-ups that we've seen so many of them time after time. People are sick of this. Um, they want real answers and, this is how we're going to get them, not by chasing no plane theories, not by chasing space beams and laser weapons. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, if, if maybe if you had the contractor that built the space beam and, you know, the scientists who worked on the program and, and all that information, like Ted Gunderson, he gives this, he gives, the, you know, the, for the scientists that built the bomb that took out the o- Oklahoma City, he gives the scientist's name and the contractor. Um in that interview I showed on the stream the other night and people should go look up Ted Gunderson and watch that if they're interested in learning more about this. This is the guy that gave Alex Jones his information on Jeffrey Epstein and Epstein Island, uh, 20 years before, you know, the, the public knew about this. So, I mean, this is, a, this is legit. Yeah. And that, um, that's one of the reasons why I like listening to you because, uh, you know, unlike a lot of other people that traffic in alternative theories, uh, about history, you you always require evidence, you know, and that's that's how it should be, right? We should. We I've should. been caught too many times before where where you know I followed a story or published a story that was disinformation, and uh, got caught on it and, and lost some credibility. You know that that's a lesson for a lot of people. You can't you can't you got to check things out, man. There's too much. There's too much crap. Have you uh, have you ever seen? There's a five hour documentary by Massimo Mazzucco called September 11th, the New Pearl Harbor. Have you ever seen that? Yeah, yeah, I have seen the New Pearl Harbor. It was a great uh, summary. Yeah, that was really. And I was just asking because if you hadn't, I was going to send you the link because I just think that is. I think you know if, if I'm not sure that everything that they talk about is uh, is you know is as they say, but it sure does a damn good job of laying out, you know, all of the exercises that were occurring that day, all of the players involved, the timeline. It goes, like, way into depth about um, the chronology of things, and uh, I just think that 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 is an extremely comprehensive watch, and I'll tell my listeners, it's on, it's on YouTube, even though it gets taken down once in a while and then put back up. If you just search for September 11th, the new Pearl Harbor, the, the name of the account that is hosting it now is called Empire of Lies. It's about five hours long. It's worth a watch. Um, Jeremy, listen, man, I want to say thanks so much for coming on. I know this is the first time that we ever talked. You kind of took this interview uh, unsolicitedly, but uh, hopefully, man, after you get that Rogan appearance and, uh, you know, you keep talking to guys like Brett and keep going on great podcasts like Concrete and you people are – you got a huge audience. Hopefully you come back and uh, – and talk to my audience again at some point because I feel like we could do five hours if we wanted to. I have a whole list of shit here that I didn't even 
ask about and uh, uh yeah man let's do another one I'll, I'm, i'd be happy to uh talk i think we we hit a lot of great points and i and i did a very i did a pretty good job here today so i'd love to come on again and yeah definitely um i will post and share this on my channel as well so people can check you out and, and you do other work too who, who else have you interviewed any any any, any good names i um, should uh check well, out I mean, most of my stuff is finance related. So my podcast right. is generally libertarian focused and financial world, Austrian economics focused for the most part. Um, and so I've interviewed like uh, guys like Peter Schiff and Ron Paul. And, you know, I'm not even sure you'd be familiar with uh, many of the people that I talk to. And, and really in the realm of what we're discussing now, I mean, Mick West would probably be the, the most prominent name that, that you would recognize. But um, yeah, yeah. You mentioned I, I, I also do a lot of solo podcasts where I just get on the microphone and pant and sweat and rage for an hour and then, uh, you know, call it a day. So, yeah, just dabble in a little bit of everything, man. Awesome. Well, I think you're doing a great job. And thank you for your questions and the opportunity to uh, let me come on and answer them. All right. And where can people find you online real quick before you go if uh, if people are looking for your content? Yeah, so I'm on YouTube, The Alien Scientist, on YouTube, and you can check me out also, alienscientist.com. And I'm on Twitter at, at, at Alien Underbar Scientist. Okay, so, and people can find that in my follows because I follow you, and I'll put the information also in the podcast description. Thanks again, Jeremy. Really appreciate it. Awesome, Chris. All right. Great talking to you. Take care. That was the one, the only, Jeremy Riss. Happy to have him on. Love listening to his work on his channel and some of the other podcasts that he's done. All right, I have a bunch of great additional content coming up. I feel like I've been raging with podcasts these last couple weeks. Feels good. But uh, once again, if you enjoyed the podcast, check out my sponsors, Masterworks, JM Bullion, my buddy George Gammon and Sang Lucci, all wonderful people to do business with. Their links are also in the podcast description. But for right now, I am out. Fools, it is football season, finally. Peace.